We continue our series on Isaiah 9, 6. Yes, we just picked one verse for the whole month of Advent, uh, but this is a verse that breaks down very easily into four parts, and so we've taken each name given to Christ in this prophecy for each Sunday of Advent. We've already worked through Wonderful Counselor, and last week we looked at Jesus as our mighty God, and today we'll be looking at Jesus as our everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace is yet to come. So let me read, I'll read the verse again for us. This is Isaiah 9, verse 6. And it reads, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So this morning we focus, as I said, on the third name given to Jesus by the prophet. Isaiah calls him Everlasting Father, Everlasting Father. Well, right away, we need to clear up some confusion here, don't we? How is it that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in fact, even in this very verse, prophesied as a child and a son, how is it that he is called a father? Is Jesus the Son and the Father, God the Father, are they the same thing? Is Jesus the Son and the Father at the same time? Is he sometimes the Son and then sometimes the Father and maybe sometimes the Spirit? There seems to be some Trinitarian confusion here we need to to work through. Now let me try to clear it up. Each person of the Trinity, and there are three, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, each person of the Trinity possesses all the divine attributes. That means that each person is fully God not any more or any less than the other persons, because God is one essence in three persons. That essence is every person's essence. So whatever is true of God is true of each person of the Trinity. For example, God is just. That's part of His essence. The Father is just, the Son is just, and the Spirit is just. You can apply every attribute of God to every person, each person of the Trinity. However, each person of the Trinity has distinct titles, experiences, and roles. For example, the Son is referred to as the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. Why? Because He sacrificed His life for our sins. He was the sacrifice, the propitiation for our sins. He was brought to the altar of God's justice, and in God's mercy, God accepted that sacrifice. Jesus did that. The Son did that. So we cannot apply the same name to the Father or the Spirit. We cannot say that the Father is the Lamb of God or the Spirit is the Lamb of God. The Father did not die for us. The Spirit was not offered as propitiation for our sins. And yet, it is true that God sacrificed Himself, that God gave His life, that God is our reconciler. And each person of the Trinity is fully involved in the redemption process, in the redemption of the world. So the same essence, every quality belongs to each person of the Trinity, and yet there are specific titles, names, and experiences. So in that sense, the Son is not the Father. 
the Son is God, but the Son is not the Father. They are distinct persons. So there should be no confusion about that. And you hear that confusion sometimes when we pray. Sometimes when we pray, we just use all sorts of names we've picked up along the way to any person of the Trinity. That's something that I think we need to be mindful of. And as you pray, you, you need to have a, a clear grasp on the three persons of the Trinity yet sharing the same essence. So the Son shares the same divine qualities as the Father, but He is not the Father. The Son is not the Father, but He is in His character like the Father because He is God. So we can say that the Son is fatherly in His character because God is fatherly in His care and His love for us. So Isaiah here predicts the coming of a divine king, the coming of Jesus Christ, this God-man, this is a specific person, the second person of the Trinity, becoming human and coming to rule over us as this promised king. And the rule of this king will be marked by fatherly attitude toward his subjects. Christ is contrasted here with other rulers who demand to be obeyed and trusted, respected, feared, and loved by their subjects, but themselves exhibit little of fatherly care and protection their subjects expect from them. I mean, you know how it goes with dictators, right? They love the big titles, don't they? It's always a supreme leader, you know. It's not just one of them. It's always the supreme guy. It's always the benevolent father, you know. It's always those kinds of over-the-top titles. They expect to be treated that way, but they themselves do not exhibit those qualities towards the people they govern. In fact, they use them and take advantage of them and use their position of authority to gain for themselves and not to give and to serve. And so Jesus is not that kind of a king. He's not that kind of dictator that comes with the titles and yet does not exhibit himself the personality and the character and the traits he needs to rule in that way. He doesn't pretend to care for his people, only to use them for his benefit. He is an everlasting father to his people. The way he rules is he rules in a fatherly way, in an eternally fatherly kind of character that is God's character. And so it's appropriate to take that character and take that quality and apply it to Jesus specifically, even though Jesus is the Son and not the Father in the Trinitarian personhood. Beyond the quality of Christ's rule, this designation of Jesus as the everlasting Father speaks to the quality of His love. Jesus Christ, the God-man, the divine and human ruler, the Messiah, is called everlasting Father by Isaiah precisely because He uniquely exemplifies and communicates God's eternal fatherly love and affection for His people. Let me say that again. I'm trying to be precise in the way I describe it because we have to draw these lines here. Jesus Christ, the God-man, is called Everlasting Father by Isaiah precisely because He uniquely exemplifies and communicates God's eternal fatherly love and affection for His people. There is something about Jesus in particular, about the second person of the Trinity who became human, something about Him specific 
that allows us to experience God's fatherly love in a special way. And I'd like to explore this with you this morning. So I'd like to answer this question. And by the way, don't ever underestimate the value of a good question, okay? And if you're a teacher, specifically a teacher of the Bible, one of the skills that, that we acquire is asking the right question. You ask the question without knowing what the answer is. And that question guides you in the exploration of truth. So the question that I had in preparation for this sermon is this. How does Jesus uniquely communicate God's fatherly love to us? How does he do that uniquely? What is it about him, about Jesus and his experience that allows him to communicate this everlasting fatherly care for us? That's my question. And so to answer this question, I'd like us to look at Jesus as the son who is loved by his father, number one, the son who is loved by his father. Number two, let's look at Jesus as the son who loves like his father, who loves us like his father. And in the end, we'll briefly look at ourselves as the people who abide in God's fatherly love. So the son who is loved by his father, the son who loves like his father, and people, the people who abide in God's fatherly love. David Brooks wrote this. Your personality is the hidden history of the places where love entered your life or was withdrawn from your life. It is shaped by the ways your parents loved you, the ways they did not love you. Our personality, who we are, is shaped by our experiences of love, either shown by other people to us, given to us, or withheld from us. And that is particularly important in the way that our parents have loved or not loved us. Now, this is profoundly true. We never, whatever age you are, we never stop being children who either enjoy our parents' love, even if our parents are gone, we either enjoy their love or we try to get it. This is just the two options. And for most people, it's not either or, it's mixed. There are pieces of their affection that we hold on to that fill us up, that shape us in a positive way, and there are holes that we try to fill either chasing their love or love of others or filling it up ourselves. But that is pretty much the key to understanding our health or dysfunction. That's a big part of who we are and how we are shaped. The single biggest shaping influence on the person is their relationship or the lack of that relationship with their parents. Now get this. Jesus Christ is the only person who has been perfectly loved by his Father. There's nobody else. Our best families are not perfect. Our best fathers, our best mothers are not perfect. Now, there's some really good parents out there, and we need to acknowledge that. Not every family is completely dysfunctional. There are plenty of people, you know, plenty of families that are dysfunctional, but not everyone. There are some good parents out there, but even they are not as good as we need them to be to be perfectly shaped by their love. 
Even unintentionally, some of their love is withheld. Even in the best households, there's still a lack of love, at least at times. But Jesus Christ is the only person who has been perfectly loved by his Father. John 17, 24 tells us that God the Father has loved God the Son from before the foundation of the world. Eternal love. That means that Jesus has never not been loved by his Father. There's never been a time when there was no love from the Father to him. Jesus has been eternally in that relationship with the Father. So Isaiah can call Jesus our everlasting Father because Jesus is the only human person who knows what it's like to experience perfect fatherly love. He's the only one. Or to put it differently, Jesus can be legitimately called our everlasting Father precisely because He is the Son of His Father. What qualifies Jesus to extend this fatherly love to us is His own experience as the Son in the relationship with His Father. I know, we're dealing with these deep, profound mysteries. But this is really important to understand how God relates to us through Christ. Let me give you an example of fatherly love that Jesus himself experienced. Look at Matthew 3, verses 16 and 17. Matthew 3, 16 and 17. This is the passage that describes what fatherly love looks like. So if you want to understand how your personality and life have been shaped by your parents, compare your experience to this passage. If you want to know how you should parent your children, if you have children or grandchildren, understand and apply this passage. This is the model of fatherly love. Matthew 3, 16 and 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So Jesus is baptized when he comes out from the water. The heavens are opened. The Spirit of God is descending like a dove and resting on him. And a voice from heaven, his Father's voice, proclaims, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is what fatherly love looks like. This is a picture for us, opening a little bit to us the understanding of what it is like to be loved by a perfect father. The son and the father are in this love relationship, and we see a glimpse of that at the baptism of Jesus. And there are at least three elements here of the father's love that is expressed to Jesus. That helps us understand how Jesus was loved and how we are to love ourselves. First, there's the father's presence. Notice the Father's presence. He's there. The Father is there with His Son and for His Son. He is there. He's not just around. He's actually tangibly and visibly and audibly there with Jesus. The Holy Spirit descending and resting on Jesus is the tangible and visible expression 
of the Father's presence. He's really there. That's part of fatherly love. His presence is being there, is being counted on. Secondly, notice the Father's pronouncement. The Father's love is verbalized. It is expressed with words. It is expressed with a voice. The Father's voice is heard, and the Father says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The Father says for everybody to hear, This is my boy, and I love him. This is part of fatherly love, isn't it? Presence, yes, he's there, tangible, there, noticeably there. Jesus hears and sees and and, and feels the Father's presence. But then there's a verbal affirmation. You are my child. You're my beloved child. I love you. And then finally, thirdly, notice the Father's pleasure. The Father's pleasure. There is genuine affection. The Father experiences joy in loving His Son. He has not, he's not begrudging in His presence. This confession of His love is not forced. It is overflowing. It's, it's coming out of His heart that's overwhelmed with His love for His Son. And so the Father says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. I am happy with Him. I am rejoicing over Him. This is my son, and I am with him, and I am enjoying being with him, and I like him. This is fatherly love. Jesus has always lived in that. That has always been his experience of the Father. Can you imagine that? This kind of love, this present and verbal and joyful fatherly love shaped Jesus. It shaped his personality. He can be called, Jesus can be called our everlasting father by Isaiah because Jesus knows from his own experience what it is like to be in a perfect familial relationship. Jesus knows what it is to be loved well, to be loved eternally, to be loved perfectly. He's the only person that knows that from experience. He is the son who is loved by his Father. And because of that, because of that experience, this is where he is unique in his ability to communicate and exemplify this fatherly love to us because he knows it, because he himself has experienced it, just like we should, just like we might. And because he is loved by, by his Father, he then can love like his Father. Jesus, the God-man, can love us the way the Father loves him. Now, there's a clear connection between those two experiences in Scripture. John 15, 9, Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, this is what we've just described, as the Father has loved me with that kind of fatherly presence and verbal affirmation and pleasure, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you, Jesus says. Jesus said, I love you in the same way that the Father loves me. 
The same quality of love, the same fatherly affection is now extended to us. And then he says, abide in my love. Abide in my love. Remain in my love. Be in the experience of this love. Now listen to Mark Jones. All the love that proceeds from the Father to the church, to us, must come through Christ. That's why Isaiah calls him everlasting Father, you see? Not to confuse the Trinitarian categories, but to point to this unique experience, a unique role that Jesus, the Son of God, has for us, is to bring that fatherly love to us because he knows it. Jones goes on to say, Christ does not add to the Father's love for us. He merely draws it out. However, the Father's love for the Son does not simply pass through him like water through a sieve. There is rather an everlasting flow of divine grace communicated to Jesus that perpetually flows from his head onto his body, the church. Because the Father loves Jesus and thus his people as the apple of his eye. Now, do you see how our experience of God's fatherly love is dependent on Jesus' own experience of God's love and his unique ability to communicate it to us? That's why Isaiah calls him everlasting father. Because he is the only person through whom with whom, by whom, because of whom we can understand and experience that God really loves us in this kind of fatherly way. Jesus is our everlasting Father in that sense. J.A. Packer said, what is a Christian? The question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as Father. You want to define what Christianity is? It's having God as Father. To be a follower of Christ, to be a Christian, is to place yourself in the flow of the Trinitarian love. From the Father to and through the Son, directed by the Spirit right into our hearts. That's Christianity. It's nothing less than that. It's to be in that flow. It's to live in the experience of God's fatherly love, to finally be loved the way we are supposed to be loved. That's what the gospel offers to us. Watched a movie over the weekend. The 2013 instant classic, A Good Day to Die Hard. <laughs> you know, with the name, like, I'm in already. I, I don't need to see the description of the movie. The fifth and final, we think, final installment in the Bruce Willis Die Hard franchise. It's been described by some as a mind blowing, heart stopping, rip roaring action thriller. <laughs> in fact, because I've seen the movie, in fact, it's a movie about parenting. You wouldn't know that, would you? Nowhere in the description it warns you about this emotional arc that it's going to take you on if you watch this heart-stopping, rip-roaring action thriller. <laughs> John McClane is, is the main hero, the still-alive and unhurt protagonist of the franchise. <clears throat> he takes vacation 
And as you know, any sane person takes vacation in Moscow. <laughs> and there, and it's unclear, I couldn't figure it out in the beginning, was he going there to meet with his son or was it just a random encounter? I wasn't sure, but he comes across in the middle of bombs going off and people getting shot. He, he encounters his son, his estranged son, Jack McLean. And they team up through a series of interesting twists, plot twists, and turns. They team up to save the world from a nuclear disaster. Stakes cannot be any higher in this movie. But this high-stake operation is just the background for an emotional journey John and Jack have embarked on. Miraculously, McLean's absence and abandonment as a parent throughout Jack's childhood and early adulthood is reversed by a 90-second conversation between two incredibly violent shootouts. It is something to behold. <laughs> and a special bond between father and son is formed as they slaughter bad guys together. <laughs> the movie ends on an emotional crescendo with Jack finally being able to call his dad, Dad. Of course, he denies it just seconds later, but there is a moment <laughs> when he's allowing himself to feel this connection, this newly formed connection to his father, John. The family at the end of the movie is whole again. There's a sister as well. And everything seems to be healed. Of course, we know that's not how it typically happens, right? Now, I've never been in a situation like that. Maybe the high-stress environment of saving the world from a nuclear disaster speeds things up. I'm not sure if there's an emotional stimulant that allows you to work through your issues much quicker. Uh, that's not been my experience. But deep wounds, in my experience, are not healed quickly. And if you have decades of neglect and abandonment, and as John McClain admits that he thought that he didn't need to be present, he thought he just needed to work. These wounds do not heal quickly. Hey, I'm still waiting for a die-hard moment with my dad, personally. And yet, there is something truthful in this movie. For all its over-the-top Hollywood special effects, there's something very truthful in that movie. And that is that a father's presence, father's sacrifice, father's love put into words, even if those words are well-worn cliches, that parental affirmation and acceptance are incredibly significant. Fatherly love expressed in being there with your kid, in caring for them and protecting them, even a glimpse of it, like in this movie, is incredibly healing. And every broken heart longs just for that. It's interesting how, as I'm thinking through Scripture, and also doing my best being a movie critic for your pleasure this morning, I'm finding these connections that cannot be there on purpose, right? It's hard to imagine that a screenwriter 
actually have looked in the same passages I have looked in Scripture and, and made those connections. But because they are universal human realities, they're actually there. Think about how is this relationship healed between this father and son? Well, there's presence, isn't there? He goes to Moscow to be with his kid. There's a presence. I am here with you. Throughout the movie, John McClane reiterates, I am here for you because I want to be with you. I want a relationship with you. There is verbal affirmation. There is a pronouncement in that highly emotional 90-second 90 90 conversation. They actually admit things. And John expresses his love for his child with words, very timidly, but he does that. And then, of course, there's the pleasure. There's the pleasure of being together. Now, in this case, this is the pleasure of killing bad guys together. I know this is kind of a weird thing, but, but in the movie, it's clear that they are connecting on that level. And they're enjoying each other, and they're enjoying doing something together, and there's real pleasure taken in each other. Now, those are, the, those are the elements of God's fatherly love for us. This is what Jesus knew. and Jesus, This is what Jesus knows as reality in his own life. And this is what we all long for. This is exactly what it is. So whether you know the Bible or not, these are the things you're going to come up with when you make a list. And you say, how should my father love me? You're definitely going to put those three things on the list, maybe more. And when you think about your own parenting, your own grandparenting, your own friendships, your own relationships, how should you treat others? You should express that same fatherly love to them. How? By being there, tangibly, visibly present, by speaking things that are true, by affirming, by expressing your love verbally, and by taking pleasure in the person and in the relationship. If you have those things, the experience of that fatherly love is incredibly healing. Wherever you can find it, and we keep looking for it, anywhere we can, we can find it, we look for it. Because we need it. That's how our hearts are made. And Jesus comes into the world of people like me, people like you, those of us who have deeply broken hearts because of our own father's absence and abandonment, and pain they've inflicted on us, and love that they withheld from us. Or maybe even to those of us who come from good families, and yet feel that there's still a lack, there's still a place in your heart, there's still space in your heart to experience more love, and you feel like your parents have done all they could for you. Jesus comes into that world, and he comes to heal the wounds of the fatherless. He, came, he comes to restore our true Father to us. And not just for a moment, not just for a 90-second conversation, but for all eternity. He is the everlasting Father, eternal Father. In Jesus, through Jesus, because of Jesus, fatherly love can flow in your life and can rest on you forever. But how? How can we, how can I be brought back into God's family? Have I not rejected God's love and care so many times? Isn't my life just a record of me saying no to God's love over and over again and running from Him even as He opens His arms to me? 
Have I not changed my name and joined a whole other family just so I wouldn't be associated with him, with my true father? Have I cut all communication with him and want nothing to do with him? That's me. I mean, if I'm honest, yeah, that's my life. That's every human's life. We're all sinners. We all cut ourselves off from God, estranged from God, separated from Him, enemies of God, not part of His household anymore, can't claim to be His children, rejected Him, found other fathers and mothers. So how can Jesus bring us back into that experience of fatherly love? This is what Jesus had to do. Jesus had to become fatherless to bring us to the Father. Jesus had to acquire our wounds, wounds of fatherlessness, so he could heal them. The reason Isaiah says, here is your everlasting father, is because only somebody like Jesus, and there is no one else like him, but only him can come into this fatherless world, take on the wounds of fatherlessness, experience fatherlessness himself so that we don't have to. Look at Matthew 26, 39. Right before Jesus is arrested, he prays, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What's the cup? What is the cup that Jesus is dreading to drink? What is it that he's talking to his Father, his perfect Father about? What is this, this fear and uncertainty that he is facing? The cup is the cup of judgment, the cup of separation, the cup of broken relationship. This is the cup of death. That's our cup. That's not his cup. He's been perfectly loved by the Father. He's not separated from him. There is no brokenness in that relationship. There is no wrath from the Father to the Son. There is no separation. But we are separate. We are estranged. We are broken. And Jesus says, I will drink this cup since there seems to be no other way, there seems to be no other possibility for me to bring these people into the experience of fatherly love that I have with you. I will submit to your will, my Father, and I will drink this cup. And then when Jesus was on the cross, and this is a haunting passage. I don't, I don't know any other passage in Scripture that is as haunting as this one. Matthew 27, 46. I, I think of it so often. Just, it sticks in your heart because it is so moving. Matthew 27, 46. When Jesus is dying on the cross, dying for us, drinking our cup, experiencing this tremendous amount of pain in all levels of his personhood. With a loud voice, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How can, how can a son like that, perfectly loved by his father from eternity, how can he say something like that? And by the way, why isn't he calling him father? Jesus always called God his father. Why isn't he calling his father here? Why is he saying, My God, my God? That is because... Jesus had to lose his father on the cross so we can find him. Jesus was abandoned by his father so we can be accepted by him. Jesus was not heard by his father so that the father can always hear us. 
Jesus is the expression of God's fatherly love for us. Think about it. In Jesus, God is present with us. I mean, isn't, isn't the whole thing about Jesus coming into this world, isn't the whole thing about God entering our world and saying, I am still claiming this world as my own. I am still claiming you as my own. I will be with you. I'm coming for my children. Isn't that the gospel? Jesus is coming into this world and saying, God is here. So we can say we have seen his glory. We know what God is like because he came to us in Jesus. I mean, think about the birth of Christ, something we anticipate and we meditate and we sing songs about it, we preach about it. The birth of Christ, God entering the world, becoming one of us and being with us, being present with us. And then there's the life of Christ. He lives the way we live. He too lost his earthly father. He too struggles with the same things we struggle with. And then he suffers and he goes to the cross where he drinks the cup, the cup of judgment for us, so he can be with us even there. To the, to the greatest depth of our despair, to the very bottom of our problem, he is there. He never leaves. He's there. God is there. And then the resurrection. What is the resurrection if not Jesus coming back for us? I'm coming with new life for you. And he comes and re-enters this world, again, fueled by the Father's love, giving us this new existence, now being reconciled to the Father. And then the ascension. Jesus says, I have to leave, but I will send you a helper. There'll be somebody here. By the way, God will be here. The presence is uninterrupted. And he will be here ministering to you. And while I'm away, I am interceding for you. I'm praying for you. I'm advocating for you. I'm making sure that the flow of the Trinitarian love keeps flowing into your heart. And then Jesus promises to return. He says, I will come back for you. And we will be together forever as a family. In Jesus... God is present with us. And Jesus, God, proclaims his love for us. It's no accident that Jesus is called the Word. He's the Word. But he's the Word made flesh. He is the verbalized love of God for us. Isn't, doesn't the Father in Christ tell us with words that he loves us? Isn't the gospel message that Jesus came to live and die and rise again for us? Isn't that a verbal expression of God's love for us? I can never get past that. Whenever I think of it, I can't question his love for me because what else can he say? What else can he do? The word became flesh. His words became part of my life, became part of my world, so I will never forget that he loves me. And then, of course, in Jesus, God delights in us. He takes pleasure in his children. Because the Father loves the Son. And we are united to the Son by faith. God delights in us as much as He delights in His Son. So there is an entrance into the Trinitarian relationship where we are now welcomed to be part of that experience of the Son from eternity of being loved by His Father. We are now part of that. 
in Jesus and only in Jesus. There's no other way, no other entrance into that but in Jesus. God delights in us. Do you know that? So are we the kind of people who abide in God's love? I'll be brief on that, but this is application. Take it with you. Work through it yourself. Pray through it. Meditate on these truths. We ought to be the kind of people that abide in God's love. Jesus told us, abide in my love. Abide in this love from the Father to me, from me to you. He shares his glory. He shares the joy that he has with the Father. Are we the kind of people that can abide in that, to be in that, to live in that reality of God's fatherly love to us in Jesus? How can we really see Jesus, really, I mean really see Jesus as our everlasting Father this Advent, this week? Well, I'll give you three pointers briefly, and then you can apply them yourselves. One, enter His presence. Enter His presence. If you're not converted, if these things sound strange to you, there's no experience to back that up in your life, you're here, and maybe you like these things, maybe you don't, but if that's not your experience, if you don't have Jesus, you don't have the Father's love. The only way you get the Father's love is through Jesus. The only way you get the Father present in your life, God present in your life, is through Jesus through faith in Him, through trust in Him, through saying, you are the Prince of Peace. You are the Mighty God. You are the Wonderful Counselor and Everlasting Father. You are that to me. And so by faith, you connect to Him. And there's a, there's a supernatural thing that happens. You get incorporated into Christ, and it's a, we can't explain a lot of that. But you change. It's a different reality. And if you are a believer... And if you're not, you, are, you are united to Christ by faith, experience that. Enter into His presence again and again and stay there, remain there, abide in it. Spend time with Him. Be with Him because He is there. That's one, enter His presence. Two, trust His words. Trust His words. Know and preach the gospel to yourself. Know His promises. He has verbalized his love for you. He's written a whole book for you to tell you just how much he loves you. Use it. Know it. Learn his promises and trust his promises. Did you know that with Jesus, you will never be without a father? And you will always have a family. You will have your family with God forever. Do you know Jesus' nevers and forevers? Do you know that? Do you know his promises, his nevers and his forevers? Can you recall them? Can you trust them? Can you live in them? For example, he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's the kind of love that, that he has for you. Do you know that? Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. If you come to Jesus today, he will not cast you out. He will not drive you out. He will welcome you. He said, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. That fatherly love will not disappear. It will not go away. It will not fail. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. 
There's resources of love that are abundant and they never run out. I am the living bread, Jesus says, that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. He will live forever. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. His love is so strong it overcomes death, which means the greatest obstacle for human flourishing has been removed for Christians. We are not living in fear of death anymore. Do you know his nevers and forevers? And finally, share in his joy. Share in his joy. Experience God's delight in you. You need to know that God delights in you. You need to know that when you go to the Father and when you speak with Him and when you talk to Him, when you spend time with Him, He is not trying to get out of it like some of our parents and us do with our children. He wants to be there with you because it brings Him pleasure. He loves to love you. He likes to be with you. You need to trust that you need to share in his joy. And Jesus shares the joy that he has with the Father with you so that joy can be complete, fulfilled in you. Meditate on that. I'll finish with this quick story and then we'll, we'll come to communion. Uh, Michael Gerson passed away this past week. He was a speechwriter for George W. Bush and a policymaker and advisor to the president for several years. Uh, local, I think, St. Louis's own, Michael Gerson. And he was um, a public person. Many people knew him. Of course, I didn't know him at all. But here's a reflection from somebody who knew him well. And usually it's interesting to, to read these obituaries, these reflections on someone's life after a person passes away. He passed away after a long illness, uh, suffered at the end of his life, and, and, and finally succumbed to it. And this is somebody who knows him well. He writes, there is much to say about Mike Gerson as a public person, his influence and reach. But to me, what stands out even more is the private example he set as a man living a deep life of deep faith and goodness, while surrounded first by the temptations to self-aggrandizement that inevitably come with being near power, and then by the temptations to self-pity that understandably come with being burdened by illness so intensely for so long. Mike could resist both temptations for the same reason, because he loved God and knew that God loved him. His legacy is that when he was in power, having great power, having the ear of the president, that's great power, it's a lot of power, he did not feel like he needed to exalt himself and be proud and arrogant and use his power in the wrong way. And then when he was out of power and sick, he didn't feel like he had to pity himself and go into the, the bitterness and resentment that often accompanies an illness like that. Why? Well, people who knew him, people who observed him say, this is one of the people who says that, he could resist both of those temptations for the same reason, because he loved God and knew that God loved him. He didn't have to act like a fatherless person because he had a father. He didn't need to prom himself up and, and fill that hole with power because he had God as his father. And he didn't need to feel bad for himself when he was sick and feel like he was lacking love because he had the love of the father and he 
loved God. I hope that's my legacy. I hope it's your legacy. That when you pass away and you transition into the eternal enjoyment of God, that people who knew you would say, he or she loved God. And they knew that God loved them.